0: If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at SoundBites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis.
1: My name is Shiva Mosavarian and joining me today are two exemplary healthcare providers, dermatologist Dr. Brad Glick and rheumatologist Dr. Arthur Kavanaugh, for a discussion about how treatments work and how treatment decisions are made. Dr. Brad Glick is a board-certified dermatologist practicing at Glick Skin Institute in Margate and Wellington, Florida. He's also an assistant clinical professor of dermatology at Herbert Wortham College of Medicine at Florida International University, immediate past president of the Florida Society of Dermatology and Dermatologic Surgery, a member of the board of directors of the American Academy of Dermatology, and a medical board member of the National Psoriasis Foundation. Joining Dr. Glick to provide the perspective of a rheumatologist is one of the world's leading rheumatologists, Dr. Arthur Cavanaugh. Dr. Kavanaugh is the director of the Center for Innovative Therapy at the Division of Rheumatology, Allergy, and Immunology at the University of California, San Diego, where he is also a professor of medicine. Dr. Kavanaugh specializes in the treatment of patients with rheumatologic disorders such as psoriatic arthritis, lupus, osteoarthritis, vasculitis, and several other diseases. He is well known within the fields of rheumatology, having published hundreds of peer-reviewed scientific publications about treatment options, clinical responsiveness, and outcome measures along with the development of guidelines for the treatment and optimal care of those with rheumatic diseases. It's my honor to welcome Dr. Glick and Dr. Kavanaugh to SoundBites today. Thank you both for being here today to discuss how treatments work and how treatment decisions are made for the management of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. To start a discussion from your perspective as a dermatologist and rheumatologist, what's the overall purpose of treatments for the management of psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis?
2: So I'll start first. First of all, thanks for having me here today, Shiva, and it's really a a privilege to be with Dr. Kavanaugh. In simple terms, I'd say that reducing the inflammatory burden of what is a chronic, unremitting disease like psoriasis with the overall potential to improve its clinical improvements so those scaly plaques that we see in patients, and then ultimately in, in reducing that inflammatory burden, we can impact their individual quality of life and therefore in improving such. So I think that best represents the general role of therapies for psoriatic
3: disease. Yeah, and I'm very pleased to also have invited and to work with Dr. Glick on this and agree with what he said. And I think the good thing is that we have so many therapeutic options now that when people ask what's the goal or what's the point or what are we aiming for, I tell them our aim is to get them to feel as they were before they had this diagnosis. And I think in many cases we can achieve that.
1: So we know there are many different and effective treatment options for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Dr. Glick, let's first start with a discussion about the use of topicals for treating psoriasis. The most frequent treatment option for psoriasis is topical steroids. When would you choose a topical steroid treatment and how do topical treatments generally work?
2: Typically, start with topical steroids in patients that have more of a mild presentation of psoriasis. We'll talk a a lot about this, I'm sure, looking at the background comorbidities that patients have, whether they have background psoriatic arthritis, but for the most part, patients that present with limited body surface area, and of course, the NPF has these ranges of zero to three mild psoriasis and three to 10 moderate and above 10 is severe psoriasis. And so this is going to be someone typically with localized disease without background joint disease and a lot of comorbidities. Corticosteroids are anti-inflammatory. So keeping with what I, I said about what we look at in terms of how we improve skin and also their overall quality of life, Corticosteroids really are our number one go-to for localized disease because they're anti-inflammatory. And on a scientific level, that kind of makes them vasoconstrictive. And by being anti-inflammatory and vasoconstrictive, we see the clinical results and the improvement of the redness and the kind of an anti-hyperproliferative effect that they have. So they downregulate a lot of these factors that are responsible for causing the inflammation in psoriatic skin disease.
1: And you sort of touched on severity of disease, but does location, amount of body surface area, or severity of disease and potential side effects factor into your choice of topical treatments?
2: Yeah, absolutely. As I said, localized disease kind of makes it easy. We worry, however, when we're using corticosteroids, and even as patients get more severe disease, moderate disease, we're going to continue to use corticosteroids in combination with whatever the therapy may be, whether it's a traditional systemic therapy or it's even modern day biologics. What I worry about is corticosteroid overuse. We fortunately have some topical steroids variations that we have in our toolbox. So you know, I worry, I base my therapeutics on severity of disease and I will use body surface areas as somewhat of a guidance to my therapeutic response for patients. You know, now in my electronic health record, I do IGAs on patients. We'll even do some POSI scores too. And and even when we're sizing patients up for joint disease and of course I'll Uh, And my my expert, Dr. Kavanaugh, here, we even do a pest screening as well for joint
1: disease. And pain management can also include use of topicals such as creams, sprays, or patches for inflamed joints. Dr. Kavanaugh, can you talk to us about the active ingredients in such products and how they work? Are they effective at managing pain associated with psoriatic arthritis, or should they be considered more of an adjunct therapy?
3: I think both. So I would put them in the category of adjuncts. And just because I don't really expect them to alter the progression of the disease, and certainly someone with severe inflammation of the joints or in the theses and the tendons, I would think of something else to be able to just uh, control the disease. But they can be very important adjuncts. Now, you kind of got me there because Truth be told, we really don't know the mechanism of the topicals that we use for the joints. And that makes sense when you think of if you go to the pharmacy or even the the pharmacy section of your grocery store, there's a thousand topicals. Some of those are non-steroidals. There's a topical version of diclofenac, a topical version of naproxen. Capsaicin, we may know more about the mechanism of it. It's the hot and hot pepper, and when applied regularly, can actually take away pain even though it burns on a single application. But there's all sorts of products of all sorts of various names. A lot of them have menthol or phenol in them, and I think perhaps the cooling is something that can impact nerves in the small and myelinated nerves, somewhat similar to the capsaicin, although a different mechanism truth is we don't know and lately there's even been a growing interest in topical CBD which I think in general as physicians we learn little about. We really can't be in the business of prescribing it but I always ask patients and there are some who have found that that's uh, very useful. Well, really don't discourage them and for individual patients some may say you know what the topicals didn't do anything for me and some will find some relief and I think that if they do find a relief, there's very little downside other than the cost. Some of the topicals are not inexpensive.
1: And how about NSAIDs or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which are the most commonly prescribed or purchased over-the-counter treatment for pain? When would you recommend an NSAID and how do they generally work? Are there associated cautions?
3: Yeah, there are about 16 of them generally available in the U.S., although some are old and hard to get lately. Part of the reason, I tell patients this all the time, part of the reason there are so many of them is that one will work for somebody and they'll think it's great and the next person will come in and say, no, that one was the devil and it caused me problems and didn't work. And there's a lot of individual variability which we can't really assign to a mechanistic basis since they're all cyclooxygenase inhibitors that help inflammation and pain, presumably by a similar mechanism. You take the two over the counter ones that are most popular, ibuprofen, which is Advil, and naproxen, which is Aleve. And a lot of my patients use them. As a rheumatologist, I don't think of them as being the coolest therapies, perhaps because they're old and they're not as cool as many of our newer therapies that we have the opportunity to use. But many, many patients use them. Somewhere 50, 60, 70% of psoriatic arthritis patients use them because they can be effective at helping their pain and actually in controlling inflammation. One of the things that I do with all the patients pretty much every visit is I count up how much they're taking. And if someone says, I'm doing great, but they're taking 15 Advil a day. Well, we need to talk because maybe you're not doing <laughs> as great as you say. I would say I think it might be analogous to what Dr. Click might say about a, a topical. If someone says, I don't need anything, I'm, topicals are doing great, and they're uh, bathing in a super uh, strong steroid across their whole body, then maybe they're not doing
2: as great. Right. Yeah, you know, I really think that's a great point too, Dr. Cavanaugh. that, we have consequences of corticosteroids, like you're saying, particularly if they're high potency. They're not only local; they're systemic. Patients can get HPA axis suppression and local effects, steroid acne, telangiectasias, atrophy, and what have you. And so, there are consequences of using all these therapies, and even even the NSAIDs over time.
1: And Dr. Glick, what's the purpose for phototherapy, and how does it work? Is phototherapy generally used as monotherapy or in combination with other treatments?
2: One of the things I think of is in my clinical practice, so we do uh, eczema laser, and we really survive very nicely after 26 years without even stand-up phototherapy or, or a light box. But I would say in general, throughout the last 20, 25 years, particularly in this last 10 to 15 with the advent of biologic therapies, while initially phototherapy had a significant role in treating psoriatic skin disease especially, I do see that its use is falling off somewhat. Perhaps with the exception of treating localized plaques with the eczema laser, the 308 nanometer laser. In terms of how it works and why it works and how it can be effective in patients, and we still use degrees of focus, it does induce cellular apoptosis. And what we know from this is that it results in the reduction of the hyperproliferative effects that we see in the psoriatic plaques that we see clinically in our patients. It also does modify cytokines, down cytokines like tumor necrosis factor alpha and other cytokines and chemokines that play a role in the inflammation and psoriasis. And, you know, we know overall that phototherapy is immunosuppressive. So that's indeed how it's used. Now, typically not as monotherapy. And I think in, in the modern era, probably not. Now, in combination, absolutely. And we still use phototherapy in, in combination and particularly with newer generation systemic therapies and biologic therapies. They're great, but they're not perfect. I like to say to patients, this biologic therapy I'm going to put you on has about a 50 60% chance of getting you 100% clear. But that means it may not get you 100% clear all the time. 30 40% of the time it may not. And so localized plaques we try and treat with topicals. Sometimes we will reach out to phototherapy and even the eczema laser.
1: It's a great point. And for you both, given what you've said so far, when would an oral systemic or biologic treatment be considered an option for treating psoriasis and or psoriatic arthritis? Are traditional oral systemics such as methotrexate or cyclosporin still an effective method for treating psoriatic disease overall?
3: Well, I can start out with the arthritis part, and really a lot of it depends on the patient. One of the challenges, but also really I think nice attributes of psoriatic arthritis is it's really the art of medicine because you have to go in the room and talk to the patient and see what's bothering them. I think we're probably skewed. I think Dr. Glick probably sees people who may have psoriatic arthritis, but they're seeing him because the skin is more of an issue to them. And I see the opposite. I see people and they have skin psoriasis, but it's not to the extent that it's bothering them. But the joints, either the peripheral joints or the spine joints or the tendon insertions, the infeces, those are bothering them more. And, that, and that's why they're in, in my practice. We also have to consider related aspects of disease that are potential, such as eye inflammation or uveitis or anterior uveitis, which we call iritis, and the presence of inflammatory bowel disease. Both of those are relatively uncommon, maybe 5% of my psoriatic arthritis patients, but they're important because they will help guide therapeutic decisions. So when it comes to systemic therapy, and methotrexate is often something we do approach initially, in part because the excess issues often require that we go there first, but in part because it's oral and people know that it's been around for a while and we really pretty understand, I think, the potential risks and benefits of it. But when to start is really a patient decision. There are people who come in and may have 20 swollen joints and it's impacting their quality of life and their functional status and we may start right then. Or we have patients who are sort of stumbling and they had one joint swollen, then it went away and then they came in and had two joints swollen and we talk about the potential risks and benefits and maybe they're not quite ready to make that decision yet and we'll keep them on the non-steroidals and treat their psoriasis in conjunction with the dermatologist and then just keep an eye on them and give them the options at every point in time because it's their choice, their decision, we just provide them the best information we can.
2: Can I ask a follow-up question to that, too, Dr. Kavanaugh? Do you find, though, with what you just mentioned about methotrexate, that it's becoming less of a requirement in terms of the access? Because I find that now that we've had biologics for so long, that we can almost go to them directly. What, what do you think?
3: Yeah, I think that varies uh, around the country. We still have a lot of trouble. I have a couple of patients mm-hmm. who I was able to bypass, but it really took very specific rationale, gotcha. such as... With bad fatty liver, and I was uncomfortable starting them on a drug that can also affect the liver. But boy, it took uh, it took a lot of uh, a lot of negotiating to get that done. So it's still in our local area; it's still an issue. Understood.
1: And Dr. Kavna, how about the oral PDE4 inhibitor premolast? How does it act in comparison to traditional oral systemics, and what is the impact on psoriatic disease?
3: It can work and one of the challenges in the real art of medicine is, I share this with patients all the time, is I can tell you exactly what's going to happen to 100 of you. I can say how many are going to get better, how many are going to go into remission, how many are not going to respond, how many are going to have this side effect, but I can't tell the next person which of the 100 they are. So a premolast, it's a PDE4 inhibitor, works by modulating cyclic AMP, an intracellular mediator probably impacts some of the inflammatory mediators relevant to the disease. And it can work. It can work really across most of the domains of psoriatic arthritis, the skin, the nails, the peripheral joints, the anthocytis or tendon inflammation. Uh, it doesn't really seem to work for spine arthritis. So for that subset of people, I might not choose it, but it certainly can be a, a valuable medication to try for many, many patients. A, a good aspect of it is that we don't have to monitor blood tests. So some of our medications, you mentioned methotrexate, cyclosporin, leflunamide, the jacanibs like tofacitinib and upadacitinib, we have to monitor lab tests with those. So a benefit of the apremlast, which is actually a benefit of some of the biologics, many of the biologics, you don't have to check lab tests for safety.
1: And Dr. Glick, how is a biologic different from an oral systemic? In general, what is a biologic and what are the key mechanisms of action? Do you have an analogy that best describes how a biologic works compared to other treatments discussed so far?
2: Oh, there's a lot of questions there. So you know, biologics, what's unique about them is they're highly targeted therapies and they inhibit these proteins we know that are cytokines and they do it directly at the docking sites of their receptors. Oral systemics, like we just discussed, Dr. Kavanaugh mentioned methotrexate, cyclosporin, they're more broad inhibitors of the immune system. So biologics in general are just more specifically targeted therapies. Now, small molecule agents that we just talked about the premolast, that works intracellularly. And the biologics tend to work outside the cell, outside of the immune cell. And again, they're proteins and they're actually manufactured from living organisms. And what they do is they compete for the actual receptor sites where these substances, these cytokines are, and what we've learned over a long period of time with the pathogenesis of psoriasis. We know that there are targeted cytokines, tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin 17, interleukin 23. And all of these play a very important role in the inflammatory burden that we've been talking about as it relates to psoriatic skin and joint disease. Now, in terms of an analogy, I have to think about that one. I think about this, it makes me think of an analogy that I use sometimes when I'm actually talking about the use of JAK inhibitors, because like a premolash, Janus kinase inhibitors kind of work inside the cell, intracellularly, and then they downregulate cytokines, as I would say, peripherally by using this pathway called STATS. And so my analogy is that the JAKs works inside the cell, and I think of a relay race like in the Olympics. And what the jacks do is they hand the baton to the stats, the signal transducer activated pathways of transcription, off to the cytokine receptor sites, and then therefore kind of downregulate the cytokines. So the biologics, if you want the analogy, it's kind of like the first runner handing the baton directly to the last runner, and they go right to that targeted docking site, and that's why they're called targeted therapies, and that's why they're so highly effective. And that's the best I can do. If Dr. Kavanaugh has a good analogy, I want to hear it.
1: (laughs) I love that analogy. (laughs) For you both, can you please provide some examples of treatments that align with the mechanisms of action that Dr. Glick just mentioned?
3: It's very exciting to have biologics with various mechanisms of action. Dr. Glick is spot on. They're really very specific. So an IL-17 inhibitor inhibits IL-17. The TNF inhibitors inhibit TNF. But having said that, Actually, we don't really know what happens. The immune system is enormous and complex and chaotic. And all of the factors that we're talking about, like these inflammatory cytokines, they don't operate in a single area. They operate in the milieu of many other inflammatory medias and many inflammatory cells. So we kind of know what we're doing, but like throwing a stone in the water and watching all the ripples go, (laughs) That's sort of how we're altering the immune system. What we've just found is that it seems to work. Sometimes it works really, really well. Sometimes we're really very surprised. So, for example, the TNF inhibitors, they were the first biologic uh, introduced to the clinic for some diseases in the late 90s. They changed the approach to psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In psoriasis, they've been in some ways surpassed by other agents, which in 100 people are more effective than the TNF inhibitors. That hasn't been the case in psoriatic arthritis. So some of the other agents look like they're good, look like they may be as good as the TNF blockers, but they're not better than them. So the, the various aspects of this complex disease are not all uniform and we see that with targeted specific mechanisms of action.
1: So, we briefly spoke about JAK inhibitors. Dr. Kavanaugh, what are our JAK inhibitors? How do they work and how effective are they for psoriatic arthritis?
3: They're relatively new, although the first one was tofacitinib, which was introduced for rheumatoid arthritis in 2012. So, on a basic level, the cytokines, we keep talking about these inflammatory mediators called cytokines like TNF. Well, TNF will Bind to its specific receptor. And then, as Dr. Glick was saying, that receptor transduces a signal eventually to the cell nucleus, which affects how we make new proteins. And that's how inflammation starts. There are many, many cytokines that have receptors. Those receptors don't have their individual signaling mechanisms as TNF does, they share these signaling molecules called the Janus kinase enzymes or the JAKs, and that's JAK1, JAK2, JAK3, and TIC2. Those are the four JAK subtypes. They signal then through the STAT, the signal transducers and activators of transcription, the STAT molecules, and that gets to the nucleus and then alters protein transcription by regulating how DNA is transcribed and translated so they're sort of intermediaries, as, as Dr. Glick was saying. We know there are different specificities of different inhibitors, but it too is a very complex system. So we have learned a lot about how they work and they can work. And uh, tofacitinib is approved in psoriatic arthritis. Uvatacitinib was just recently approved in psoriatic arthritis. There are some promising data with other jackanibs that are likely coming. And they look like they can work and actually look like they can work across the the domains, the peripheral arthritis, the skin, the spine or axial arthritis, and even for other things like inflammatory bowel disease. So we're sort of finding out how best to use them, where to put them in our algorithmic approach to the treatment of patients. And that was part of what I said at the very start. It's We have so many agents available to us that it's really refreshing to be able to tell the patient we have a lot of choices.
1: That's so true. And for you both, as the understanding of how psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis evolves, treatment options are continuing to become more targeted. What are potential new targets of treatments in the pipeline for psoriatic disease?
2: Well, I'll start. I would say that since about 70 to 80 percent of psoriatic skin disease tends to be in that mild to moderate group, and since most patients are using topical therapies, we do have some new not so much targets, but there's some new topical PDE4 inhibitors that are coming to market. There are very unique mechanism of action in a aerohydrocarbon receptor agonist known as Topinaroff, which should be coming soon. Very interesting product that downregulates cytokines. It also repairs the skin barrier, making it potentially effective in psoriasis. And the phase three studies look quite good. And it actually has a, somewhat of a remittive effect. Also topical Janus kinase inhibitors for skin disease approved already for atopic dermatitis, but we should have a host of those topical JAK inhibitors uh, for uh, treating uh, psoriatic skin disease as well. There's one that's approved for atopic dermatitis, which is ruxolitinib, and it will probably play a role in a host of uh, auto-inflammatory conditions like vitiligo and alopecia areata. In terms of systemics, and then I'll hand it over to Dr. Kavanaugh, We do know, that there's a TIP2 inhibitor that's going to come in for treating our patients with psoriasis, hopefully for psoriatic joint disease. I believe the data looks pretty good. And then finally, an interleukin-17AF, I believe, in bimikizumab, which looks like it should be profoundly effective in treating psoriatic skin disease. And I think as well, uh, the data looks pretty good for the joints. But I, I would air to Dr. Kavanaugh and what's going on in the rheumatology side.
3: I think actually you touched on it, and of course, as clinicians, we're most excited by things that are really close that look as if they will almost certainly be approved, and I would put in the bimakizumab, the IL-17-AF inhibitor in that group, and the ducrabacitinib. There's enough data, and it looks good enough. It'd be surprising if we didn't have these molecules. There's lots of others that are in development, some very early development. A number of them are mechanisms that we already know about, so they would be presumably expected to be effective. But then there are novel things that are much earlier along in the whole developmental process. But actually, I have to say, as a rheumatologist, I've been incredibly impressed at all the progress in topical psoriasis therapies that Seems like it wasn't that long ago with steroids and now so many other mechanisms of action topically. And of course, I think all of us love the idea of topical because if you can get at the site of disease involvement and minimize systemic absorption, then you should have a benefit in terms of potential side effects.
2: Yeah, I agree with that completely. And we, for a very long period of time now, with 11 drugs in the toolbox that are biologics for treating psoriasis, it's just nice to be adding to the toolbox for the topicals as well. Well said. I agree completely.
1: And Dr. Glick, given all the treatment options we've just discussed, how do you decide which treatment option is best for someone newly diagnosed with psoriasis? What factors do you generally consider?
2: We alluded to some of this before, and Dr. Kavanaugh really just... Uh, put this together really nice and teed it up well, and that is looking at the whole patient. I mean, we have to look at their medication profile, their comorbidities. As an example, just as he referenced earlier, someone who has background inflammatory bowel disease, which may not be so, so common, but we see it in our patients with psoriatic disease, There are some contraindications, such as using interleukin-17 blockers. So you have to kind of look at the whole patient, address their comorbidities, can't uh, minimize at all the importance of asking the right questions, particularly as the dermatologist, about potential joint disease. And there are some clinical features of psoriasis, making sure we check for scalp disease. Uh, Patients with scalp disease, nail changes, nail pitting, may have a greater tendency towards having background psoriatic joint disease and so we have to ask the right question and really size up each individual specifically accordingly by looking at the whole patient. Dr. Cavanaugh.
3: Absolutely. If you say, well, how do you treat psoriatic arthritis? Well, the answer is, of course, it depends. Where was the patient's treatment journey before they got to you? We don't always start out taking brand new untreated patients. They often have had some experience. They may have had some topicals. They may have had a variety of non steroids, They may have tried other systemic medicines. So what did they try and what was the result? And then super, super important, the comorbidities. That is something we think about all the time because that will guide therapies that would be more preferred or less preferred based on the side effect anticipation, which depend a lot on the comorbidities the patients have. And then patient choice. Sometimes there are too many choices. And I think one of the unmet needs, the biggest unmet need, I think, for us is we don't know which drug is the best for which patient. So we try various medications and we're guided by other factors, but we don't know. We don't have biomarkers that would say, don't use this medication first, use that one because it's going to be more effective and better tolerated.
1: So how do you both approach the discussion of risk versus benefit as part of determining a treatment option for someone with psoriatic disease?
2: Well, Depending on severity, I think that's where it starts. And we presume that we're considering, let's say, systemic therapy, because I think topicals are are a much easier discussion unless you're receiving a patient who's chronically been using corticosteroids and they're starting to get side effects. I really think this is all about education. I try to sit down with patients and explain to them exactly what risk and benefit mean. And with this new generation of biologics and having so many of them, That while some of the patients may be fearful of an injectable therapy, for instance, or even if we're talking about a traditional systemic therapy, I think that we really don't talk about them as much because we've spent this last 20 years in a biologic era. Regardless, I think that when they see that the benefits certainly outweigh the risks accordingly, specifically with the biologic therapies, which are highly targeted and their side effect profiles are at least pretty good, in my opinion, compared to the more traditional therapies, I I think it's an important setup to be able to make an appropriate decision. And I think it's important to mention the concept of shared decision making. This is not just our decision as a clinician. Obviously, the patient has to have all the particular bullets in place in order to make a decision, and we have to include their family members as well.
3: Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And we can present information, again, on what happens to 100 people and try to put that in a meaningful way. And you know, something that happens 1 in 100 doesn't sound that common. So you try to frame it as just the likelihood and say that there are some things that you might expect and some things that are going to be very rare and we'll do our best to evaluate the whole patient to minimize the risk of some untoward reaction that we might be able to predict in some way.
1: And Dr. Havnott, you were involved in the development of the Joint AAD NPF Guidelines of Care for the Management and Treatment of Psoriasis with Biologics. How important are treatment guidelines in determining treatment choices?
3: Well, one of the things that you see over and over in the guidelines is that uh, really it doesn't supersede or supplant the individual provider's choice because it's so complicated. There are so many factors, not only about the different aspects of the disease, but as we've been speaking of about the comorbidities and what's the patient like and then preferences. So guidelines are good. in I think catching everybody up to what the latest evidence is, which is quite tricky because there are new data all the time. They're exciting, but they can't really say you must do this algorithm and I think the care of patients with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis is a beautiful example of the the art of medicine. There is no absolute algorithm such as there is for something that might be a little bit simpler, like how to anticoagulate somebody who just came in the hospital. Do this, measure this. That doesn't work for psoriatic disease. too complicated.
1: And Dr. Glick, as we discussed today, there are many treatment options for moderate to severe psoriasis. However, patient satisfaction remains low. Combination therapy and treatment switching are common, and many patients remain undiagnosed, untreated, or undertreated. People with mild psoriasis tend not to seek treatment. What can be done to address issues associated with such unmet treatment challenges?
2: I think the simple answer is just providing more and more education. I mean. We in in the trenches really have to continue to just educate patients, their family members. I think the National Psoriasis Foundation does an incredible job of putting out information on behalf of this chronic, potentially debilitating disease, particularly when it affects the joints. The Patient Navigator is a great opportunity for patients to get smarter about their disease and take control of their disease. I really think it comes down to education, that we really didn't talk today so much about all the specific comorbidities, but I think that conveying the message that this really is beyond the skin, and it, it's not that it even just impacts the joints, but that there are conditions that run parallel, a metabolic syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease. So I'm seeing more and more patients with psoriasis, with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, certainly with chronic kidney disease, and so it's a much bigger picture than just the skin. We need to educate our patients accordingly, and I think we need to provide more education to the public at large about this condition.
3: Yeah. I think one of the real benefits of having so many options is that drives public awareness and that drives the understanding of patients with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis that there are options. We see this all the time in medications, in medicine Some of us are old enough to remember that before the osteoporosis drugs, we had nothing. And then we had osteoporosis drugs. Well, not every osteoporosis patient was on medication that first year. It takes a while for the understanding that there are options. And the more options there are, the better. I know that there's a lot of perceived negative aspects about direct-to-consumer ads and such. But I actually think making patients aware of the breadth of choices is not a bad thing. I don't find people coming in saying, I want drug X because I saw a TV commercial about it, but I find a lot of people who say, hey, I heard about this. What is this? I'm not going to jump on it because I saw it on a commercial, but I want to ask you about it.
2: I couldn't agree more, Dr. Kavanaugh. I really think that public awareness is raised by a lot of this direct-to-consumer advertising. So in certain senses, I, I really do think it is helpful.
1: I want to thank you so much for being here today. Do you have any final comments for our listeners about treatment options and how treatment decisions are made?
2: Just as Dr. Kavanaugh just alluded to, we're really fortunate to have such an array of therapies and we just appear to be getting more and more. And so our patients could end up being quite fortunate because they can really, as I mentioned before, share in the decision about what therapy is going to be best for them. And it will vary. So with that, I just think there's a, a great benefit for our patients because there are so many options, and I just want to say thank you to Yushiv and also Dr. Kavanaugh for having me here today.
3: Let me add my thanks, and it's been a pleasure discussing it. And it's a really great area to discuss. There's just so many new options approved in the rheumatology world. Psoriatic arthritis, in some ways, used to be the redheaded stepchild. And We sort of we we knew about it. We kind of ignored it. We treated it like rheumatoid arthritis and it's a distinct disease and it was really the advent of the newer medications beginning with the TNF inhibitors that caused the entire field to just explode with a lot of interest and good things happen. When there's newer therapies, all of a sudden you realize your outcome measures could be better and the outcome measures are better then you realize the goals of treatment are better. And those things have just really advanced over the past couple of years. So it's an exciting time. And it looks like that's going to continue. So hopefully we can do as good as possible for all of our patients with psoriasis and psoriatic
1: arthritis. Yes, it's definitely exciting times on the treatment front for this community. Thank you, Dr. Glick and Dr. Kavanaugh for such an insightful discussion about how treatments work and how treatment decisions are made. Hopefully, this discussion gives our listeners a greater understanding of why one treatment may be chosen over another. Your patients are certainly lucky to have you on their healthcare team. For our listeners, if you like what you heard today, take our soundbite survey. We'd love to hear if you like our topics, speakers, and format. You can find the survey at psoriasis.org forward slash wash hyphen and hyphen listen. For more information about how treatments work for psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, contact the Patient Navigation Center for the February free e kit, which includes resources to help you when making shared treatment decisions with your healthcare provider. Email education at psoriasis.org or call 800 723 9166 option 1 today. As a reminder, you can find Soundbite CME episodes at psoriasis.org forward slash CME hyphen library. And finally, thank you to our sponsors who provided support on behalf of this SoundBites episode through unrestricted educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb, Janssen, and Lily.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of SoundBites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future please join us for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of SoundBites on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Ghana, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage. To learn more about this topic or others, please visit psoriasis.org or contact us with your questions or comments by email at podcast psoriasis.org.